Welcome to the Supervisory Development Course Podcast from the University of Minnesota. This podcast discusses the key influence skills you can use to drive results for your team, department, and the university. For more information on influence best practices and resources, visit supervising.umn.edu and explore the influence webinar page, which includes relevant resources. So welcome to the Art of Influence webinar. For those of you that are just joining us, I'm Christina McGuire, and I'll be presenting the material today along with Brandon Sullivan, the Senior Director of Leadership and Talent Development. We will also be joined by Carrie Nolan, Tammy Jowart, and Donna Sadoff during the second half of the webinar. So welcome again to our webinar on the art of influencing. Today's webinar will have three parts. First, we'll talk about what influence is and why you might want to use it. Second, we'll talk about what skills you can use to influence. And finally, we'll talk with our guests about what influence can specifically look like at the university. We will start with talking about what influence is and why you might need to use it. And what we're talking about, um, and as we're talking about the answer to these two questions in this session, please think about how influence overlaps with other supervisory skills that you use in your current role. So we define influence as the ability to personally affect the actions, decisions, opinions, or thinking of others. Ultimately, this allows you to get things done and achieve desired outcomes. It's true, influence can have a negative connotation, and it's true that you can use influence for selfish purposes. And that's often what we think of when we, influence, when we think of influence as something negative, like manipulation. But there's a more positive side to influence. Wherever, whenever you're trying to get something to happen and you need to get other support, you can use influence to get results. Here at the U, this would include influencing decisions that will affect your team or department. When a team or department is more effective, it's good for the whole university. And I think that's something that we can all get behind. Using influence for the benefit of your team and the university is how we'll be talking about influence today. One thing to remember is that influence is situation specific. We can give you guidelines, but you'll have to figure out how to apply it in your situation. Our goal during this webinar is not to tell you one way to do it, but to give you some things to think about that you could apply to your work as a supervisor. At this point, you might be wondering what influence looks like or how to do it effectively. Before we talk about specific ways to influence, let's take a brief look at some common influence pitfalls that will help us expand our idea of what influence is and isn't. This list has three common influence pitfalls that people fall into. Number one, influencing only for yourself. Two, underestimating your influence. And three, focusing on the wrong people. This list represents some pretty commonly held ideas around influence that we'd like to address at this point. The first pitfall is influencing for yourself or when people use influence for their own gain or selfish reasons. Honestly, it's human nature to get what you to want to get your own way and to try to persuade people to come along with you. This might be why a lot of people associate influence with negative intentions or manipulation. So always start by asking yourself who benefits from influence. The answer to this will help distinguish if the influence is being used with a negative or positive intention. As a supervisor, there's nothing wrong with influencing people to drive results that benefit you, your team, and the university. So I'd like to ask Brandon to weigh in on this point. So Brandon, can you help us understand this in more concrete terms? Yeah, so it really comes down to, are you uh, influencing for the greater good or are you influencing for your own personal agenda? 
And anytime you're influencing for your own personal agenda, that's probably not, as a supervisor at the university, where you want to be focusing your energy. Um, and uh, just to give you an example that's common that I think everybody has done at one point or another, it's human nature, is when something goes wrong or there's a mistake and you throw someone under the bus for it instead of totally accepting accountability yourself. Um, so you, maybe there's a mistake, you're meeting with your own manager, and you're more emphasizing what someone else did wrong and de-emphasizing your role in it, right, to try to you know, come out with uh, your, your own um, reputation intact. That's an example of influence that is negative. Um, it's not a good use of influence as a supervisor. Um, uh, an example of good influence would be, let's say, you're trying to improve a, a process in an academic department, and maybe initially the department administrator and the faculty are skeptical and, and push back. Um, your efforts to try to persuade them and influence them to support it um, are probably going to be a positive use of influence if in the end it improves life for them in their department. Uh, so it really comes down to who benefits and making sure that as a supervisor, you're using influence to advance uh, goals and priorities of your department and the university and not your own personal agenda. Wonderful. Thanks, Brandon. That distinction is very helpful. So moving on to the second pitfall. The second pitfall is when you underestimate your influence or don't recognize what you have influence over. So this is very common. There's a lot of situations that supervisors have influence over that they don't have direct control over. If you look at the image on the slide, you can see that the influence is a sphere that is more ambiguous than just control or no control, but it's within your reach. A lot of supervisory development is aimed at helping you realize what you do or don't have control over, and this is very important for a lot of reasons. But don't forget to focus on that middle ring of influence. As you probably already know, a nice perk of understanding these fears is that this can reduce your work-related stress because it helps you know where and how to focus your efforts. The third pitfall we want to highlight is when you don't recognize the key people that you need to influence. With influence, knowing who to appeal to and then investing time working with those people and getting their support goes a long way to making an effective use of your time. If you take a look at this slide, you can see a formal organization chart. This type of organization is reflected in most departments and units here at the U. So what does it mean to focus on the wrong people when influencing? So I'm going to turn it back to Brandon. Could you talk a little bit more about what it means for a supervisor to focus on the wrong person to influence? Yeah, I would say that the most common mistake that people make when trying to influence is to rely entirely on the formal organizational chart. Um, and what I mean by that is, let's say that you're trying to influence the department uh, on this slide, and um, you say, oh, well, Alyssa's the, uh, the head or the director of this department, um, and so what I really need to do is sit down with Alyssa, make sure that I have uh, their support, and that then we're good to go. Then I'll have the support of the department because Alyssa's the leader. Um, well, that in many cases may not actually be the right way to go. Um, you probably do need, well, you definitely do need Alyssa's support, but that may not be the best way to influence that department. If you look at the slide next to, or the chart next to this, so what this is, is uh, you may have heard of something called social network analysis. If you haven't, that's fine. But basically, you can look at uh, by a particular type of topic or who people trust for a particular kind of thing. Who do people go to? Who's the go-to person in an organization? And the size of the bubble shows you how much that person is trusted or is the go-to for that issue. So let's say in this case, Asha is somebody who is the go-to, who has the credibility and the trust 
um, on the issue you are trying to influence. You'll notice if you look at the formal org, org chart, they're quite a ways down uh, on the org chart. Probably not the person you'd start with if you were following that org chart. But what this informal network shows you is how things actually work in the department. So if you want to influence that department on that issue, you probably want to figure out, okay, Asha is someone who has influence, um, who probably needs to be on board with this, and I probably need to work with that person. Um, what will happen, and you know, if anyone who's tried to influence has run into this, um, let's say you have Alyssa's support, you haven't talked to Asha, Alyssa talks to Asha, and Asha says, you know what, I've got concerns. I'm not sure that this is the right way to go. Suddenly Alyssa's support is going to start crumbling. On the other hand, if Asha says to Alyssa, you know what, I think this is a great idea, and I think we should support it, suddenly you probably have a lot of support from Alyssa. And so one of the mistakes that uh, people can make in influencing is just focusing on those at the top of the org chart, when in reality, um, you really need to identify who are those key influencers because they will really help you and they can really get in your way if you don't have them on board. Awesome. So thank you for that. I think this really helps clarify for audience what they should think about when you're identifying who you need to influence. So let's take a minute to summarize our ideas so far before we dive into the specific influencing skills. So first, remember to ask yourself about who benefits from the influence. If you use the influence to benefit your team, department, or university, that can be a pretty good indicator that you're using influence to make a positive impact. Second, remember that influence is a way to have impact on something that's outside of your control. And finally, remember to focus on influencing the right people. It won't always be clear as a structured organizational chart, so take the time to really think about who do you need to influence. Okay, so at this point we're going to take a deeper dive into how to influence someone by taking a closer look at several skills that work. As a reminder, keep thinking about how these skills might overlap with the actions that you already take as a supervisor and think through how these might work for you. So here is a list of um, what we're calling limited skills for influence. So they're legitimacy, which is relying on your authority position or policies and rules. Exchange, rewarding support with benefits or favors. Personal appeals, asking for support based on friendship or loyalty. Ingratiation, which is flattery and praise. And pressure, which is warning, threats, and repeated demands. So this list of limited influence skills seems to include a lot of the common skills that people might use to influence others. Everybody uses these skills here and there, and to some extent they may initially seem effective, um, but maybe not always in the long run. So Brandon, can you talk a little bit more about why these skills are considered limited? Yeah, and, and so we're talking in the context of being a supervisor at the university, and so what you're generally trying to do is you know, advance some key goals and priorities. So in that case, these five skills or, or tactics, um, they may get you compliance in the moment, uh, but they don't really build engagement and commitment to broader shared goals. And building commitment to broader shared goals is how in the long run you really drive influence as a supervisor. Um, and so each of these, um, you know, you may get people to do what you want this time, but next time they may not. Um, and you also, one of the things that you see here is a lot of these are very relational. Um, and if you're trying to drive change or trying to really influence, it's probably not just you personally doing it. You probably have other people who you need to be on board, other people who are acting on your behalf. 
So for example, uh, personal appeals, um, you know, at the university, there's lots of relationships everywhere, right? We have uh, friendships, we have loyalty going all sorts of directions, and that can get things done, but that doesn't transfer very easily between people. Um, so if you have a relationship with someone you're trying to influence, but then you need someone to stand in for you, or you need other people to, to be driving that, um, it's gonna be much more limited in how effective that is. And pressure is something that, um, that you see people default to when they feel like, well, we've just gotta get this done, I don't care how, and you see that. And we've probably all experienced a little bit of that at, at times. That often will backfire. In the moment, if you have the leverage, you may be able to force someone to do something. But human nature is to not like to be forced to do things. Um, and so that's likely to create more resistance the next time you go back. So these tend to be a little more short term in how effective they are. They don't really build that engagement in common goals. Um, and they don't tend to get you as far as you probably need to go um, in your role as a supervisor. Okay, well thank you for that. And I hope that um, illustrates that why while these are influence skills, they do have their limitations. So they may not be the best ones to implement in a situation where you really care about the outcome that you're trying to influence. On this slide, you'll see the four skills from our list that are considered to be the most effective, and these kind of topped our list of polls, so that's, that's encouraging to hear. Um, so most effective for influencing others' decisions, ideas, actions, or opinions, and they're rational persuasion, consultation, inspirational appeals, and coalitions. Unlike the list of the skills from the previous slide, these skills are more effective long-term because they build trust and more long-term influence. As we talk about these skills, think about how they might be used in combination. The trick is to use all of these because combining these skills increases your chance of success. That doesn't mean that you have to use all of them, but depending on who you are trying to influence or for what purpose, one skill or a combination of them may work better. So the first skill is rational persuasion. This is a really common skill and widely accepted approach because it's all about creating a logical, fact-based rationale for why something would be beneficial. This skill is effective at influencing most people, whether they are a peer or even if they are organizationally above or below you. What does this look like when it isn't being used or not being used well? For example, maybe you're advocating for a process change on your team. You're really excited about the idea because you think it will make things better for everyone. So you set up a meeting with your manager and a couple of key decision makers, and you're certain that once they see how excited you are, they'll buy into your idea. At this point, it is extremely important for you not just to be excited, but to think through who your audience is, anticipate their key concerns, and include any facts or data that you have to present a rational, persuasive case for your idea. Doing this ahead of time can help influence these key decision makers and avoid being caught off guard and being asked a lot of questions that you don't have answers for. So let's take a look at our second influence skill. The next skill is consultation. This means understanding what other people need or want or are concerned about so that you can construct a solution that will have buy-in. This goes above and beyond considering your audience ahead of time. It includes asking questions and trying to know what others are excited or concerned about. Be careful not to make assumptions about what others based on your experiences with them or assume that they are like you and have the same goals or see the goals in the same way. So what does this look like if you don't do it well? To take our last example, you might go into your meeting with your team. 
You're so sure that everyone is on the same page on how the idea for change would positively impact everyone's team that you steamroll the entire meeting and forget to ask questions. You don't pick up on the reservations of others. So in order to use the consultation skill effectively, you need to ask questions and seek to understand those who are trying to, those you are trying to bring along. So when you're with your audience, listen for a disconnect. If there is a disconnect, be honest and ask questions to try to understand their ideas more and focus on how the idea will work for everyone. Consultation is important because others feel included and valued, and they're more likely to see the process as fair and valid. Make sure you identify the interests, goals, concerns, and motivations of others, and ensure that ideas and recommendations address others' needs and their priorities. If this reminds you of reflective listening, totally agree. It's not enough to listen and use others' ideas. It's also important to communicate back to the stakeholders what you did or didn't do with their ideas. The next skill is inspirational appeals. Usually the skill goes hand in hand with consultation because once you understand the shared values and the goals of the key individuals, you can appeal to them. If you have an idea that you're inspired and excited about, that's awesome, but it's not usually enough. In order to get other people inspired, you need to connect your ideas to their values and goals. After you've asked questions with a consultation skill, connect your ideas to what the key stakeholders value. As you can see here, inspirational appeals clearly connect to other influence skills. It is a good reminder that all these skills are most effective when used together, and oftentimes the lines start to blur between them. The final skill we're focusing on today is coalition. This is all about connecting to key individuals that you need to influence. This might sound familiar, familiar and similar to consultation, but consultation is broader. With consultation, you're going to want to hear input from most people that the decision might impact. But coalitions are built within the work you do with consultation. With coalitions, it's really about identifying the key people and making them a part of the team. Key people might be the people who are an expert in the area or hold a leadership position. At other times, the key person can be someone in any sort of position who people listen to. The ability to listen makes them the key person when you are trying to move an idea forward. If the key people share ownership of the idea, they will be more effective in bringing other people along. You can do this for a specific short-term project, but really a coalition should become a more proactive process as you try to nurture relationships and build a foundation of trust and support instead of just tapping them when you need their help. In order to effectively build a coalition, you have to be observant and identify the key individuals. For example, you might hear someone's name coming up over and over when it comes to a certain area of expertise or project. If you're trying to influence someone within this person's area of expertise, this is likely someone you will need to get on board and bring into your coalition. So what does this actually look like when we put these four skills to use? So to answer that, I'm gonna turn it back over to Brandon, who's going to talk to our guests today. Great, so to help us think about what influence looks like in practice here at the university. Um, with me here today I have uh, Tammy Jowart and Carrie Nolan um, in two very different roles but they both uh, have been very influential uh, and have consulted and coached leaders and supervisors on how to be more uh, influential and strategic around uh, getting support and buy-in for, for different things. Um, so I have a few questions uh, that I'm going to ask each of them um, so that we can kind of dig in a little bit to what does this really look like. So let's start with Tammy. Hey, Tammy, how are you? Hi, good. Thanks for being here. 
Um, so to start out, could you talk a little bit about your, your current role and how you use influence in your role? Yeah. So I am currently the HR director at the Global Programs and Strategy Alliance. Um, and my role really encompasses all of the HR lifecycle, hiring, performance, management, policy, interpretation, um, and employee relations. And I would say that in some way, I use influence every day, either um, with employees or coworkers, supervisors, um, sometimes leadership, sometimes other units on campus. And, and it can be things as simple as trying to help make sure people understand why we can and can't do something and taking it all the way up to, you know, we need to stop this practice because this might be happening or we need to start doing this because we're at risk for doing something else happening. Yeah, so you've got a lot of different influence situations <laughs> and probably not formal authority over most of the people you're influencing. Correct. Yeah, so that makes it particularly tricky. Um, so when, when you need to influence someone, what are some of the things that you think about? Um, I like to make sure that I understand kind of where everyone is coming from, exactly what what they're trying, what the goal is when, when we're working together, um, and help come up with a variety of options that might be viable. And what are some of the common sort of roadblocks or challenges that you run into when you're trying to do that? Yeah. Um, a lot of times it's that not everyone is on the same page. There's some sort of elephant in the room that is being unsaid and or they think it's known widely and it's not or everyone has a different version. Um, so trying to get at that, asking direct questions and um, making sure everyone is at the same starting point so that we can end at the same point. Yeah, I'm curious about that, the whole elephant in the room thing because um, you know I think that's such a common issue um, in any organization, when you're trying to, you know, kind of get everybody to agree on some common goals, there's things that may be unsaid that everybody knows are there, or issues everyone's a little bit nervous to kind of go after. Do you do you have thoughts on sort of, you know, what are some strategies you can use to to, to address the elephant in the room, so to speak? Yeah, um, a lot of times I kind of watch the room, see, watch for body language, um, and ask a lot of clear and direct questions to get people to talk. Um, sometimes I have to remind people that we are all in this together, um, that we're, we should all have positive intent. We're trying to end on the same, same place. So you mentioned positive intent. So is that something that you <laughs> run into a lot where people aren't assuming that? And, and what does that look like? Yeah, I think so. I think um, I have experienced many situations throughout the years where um, everyone has their piece of information and their ultimate goal and because not everyone is on the same page there's this tendency to sort of keep the information close instead of being able to share it widely and understand that we're all here to help each other get to a good place and not work against each other. So you're seeing people not sharing information because they're afraid what someone else will do with it, that yep. kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so what, what are some strategies that can be helpful in that? That's, you know, in terms of group decision making, you know, getting all of those, that information out there is so important, right? And for, for influencing, for getting past um, concerns, questions people have, 
Uh, what are some things that can be effective with different groups? Um, sometimes I have done simple conversations where we list out everyone's concerns on a board so we can see them all and see how they kind of all intersect. Sometimes I have listened to groups of people individually and then worked together with, for example, if I have a group of um, employees and supervisors who are bringing to me similar concerns over the same situation, um, I might work with one group or the other. I, I'm gonna hear both sides, but I might work with one group or the other to really focus on what solutions might be possible um, and then use that as a way to sort of help the other side understand where things are coming from. And often I find that since one side or the other has been involved in creating the solutions, um, there's a lot more buy-in across the, across the board. Yeah, one of the things that I'm hearing you, you say that, that as I'm thinking about it resonates with my experience at the university is that it, there may need to sometimes be structure that you provide to help people come together, that there's not always this sort of organic, okay, we're going to find our common ground, we're going to work towards common goals, we're assuming everybody means well, that, that you might, if you're trying to influence uh, several groups, you might actually have to provide some of that structure for them to do that. Would you? Yeah, yes, definitely. And every group is different, so you can't, it's definitely not a one size fits all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you know now you have um, you know in your career at the university, you know you've done a lot of influencing of faculty, of staff, you know academic units and that kind of thing. Um, is there is there anything that you would call out as sort of a you know something you wish you'd known earlier or sort of common misconceptions or mistakes that people make uh, when trying to influence you know particularly let's say in an academic department or where it's you know, you've got faculty and staff. Yeah, I think that. For me, it gets down to the clear, honest, direct communication, not being afraid to ask questions, um, and really trying to identify what that elephant in the room is early. What happens if you don't? Um, then you end up with lots of different people who have lots of different ideas about where we should land, um, and oftentimes that means these groups or committees go on for months or years <laughs> instead of you know, a couple of meetings. It makes things take a lot longer. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because eventually the, the elephants in the room are going to be, I mean, they're there. It's just, <laughs> when is that going to be addressed and, and, and so on. Um, and so, you know, in terms of kind of your own experience here uh, at the university, um, you know, what, if you were to boil it down and sort of, let's say, you know, we had a new supervisor who was just given a big project uh, that required influencing uh, other people, you know, what would be the you know one or two things you would want them to just really keep in mind? Um, focusing on listening, making sure that they understand all the key pieces of what we're, what they're trying to do, um, making sure they ask a lot of questions, and then uh, being clear about what we're hoping the outcome will be, so that we can all agree that that's where we're headed. Yeah, okay. And one well, one last question, and uh, you'll be here for the Q&A, so we'll, we'll, we'll get you some, get some more insights out of you. Um, you. You'd mentioned that being direct is really helpful in influencing. Um, what do you, 
there's a lot of a lot of times we hear and I've experienced this you know it can be scary to be really direct especially when you know that there's not agreement on something right you know that there's going to be disagreement and potentially conflict um, so what what has been your experience when you do go there right when you do say hey we need to directly address this issue that everybody is not in agreement on in order to move forward what happens when in your experience typically when you do that yeah um, well it, it's, there's a variety of things. Sometimes it works really well. People are kind of um, almost shocked that we're gonna get there that quick, like, oh, okay. And then they kind of regroup and we move forward. Um, sometimes uh, there is this idea that we're, uh, that I'm not being Minnesota nice enough and that, wow, I can't believe she's that bold. Um, uh, sometimes it, you can tell that I have hurt some feelings or made people really upset and so we have to pause and kind of explain where I'm coming from or why I'm being so direct. Uh, but usually, I mean, aside from a handful of times, usually we get done what needs to get done a lot faster by being direct. Yeah, okay, thank you. That's a that is a tough thing, I think, for a lot of a lot of people, um, but it, it sounds like it's an important part of the process to find a way to surface these issues where people maybe disagree and have an actual conversation about it. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Now, uh, Carrie Nolan is here, and uh, Carrie is a communication guru. I would say um, I rely on Carrie for a lot of advice uh, on uh, strategy around uh, influence and all sorts of other things. Um, so uh, I'd like to kind of get your take on you know, sort of the issue of understanding your audience, right? That's a really important part of, of influencing. Um, so first, could you talk a little bit about your role here at the university um, and, and a time when you influence someone you know, outside of your immediate department? Sure. Yeah, I provide communications consultations to different departments and leaders on campus and to help bring awareness um, and interest in their programs and initiatives. Um, my, my influence is, is daily and it spans from working on big projects like the community fund drive and influencing people to donate and contribute to that to um, just working with different leaders and project managers on how to implement communications best practices and strategies. So when you're you know, trying to influence uh, someone, you know, what are you thinking about? What are the things that are top of mind for you? When I'm, when I'm working on something, I mean, with, without, I think it's become second nature that I, I always just think about my audience and who I'm working with and, and who I'm trying to, to influence. And so when, when you're not um, sensing enthusiasm or buy-in or you're feeling like, okay, they're not really here with me the way I need them to be, you know, what, what are some things that you do to try to really engage them uh, where they're at? Um, similar to Tammy is asking questions. Like, uh, sometimes, to Tammy's point, getting the elephant in the room, I'll say, you have a look on your face. Like, what, does, what are you thinking? Or, or something like that. But really trying to ask questions about, about what they're after. Um, another example is I was working on a, a project with um, some people, and they wanted to make a change into uh, communications material that really wasn't the best practice. I didn't think it was a good idea. I thought making that change would be make it easier for some people to have access to the information, but harder for others. So instead of just saying no, I ask more questions about, you know, what is the feedback that you're hearing from these people? Why, what makes you think that way? 
and it, I wasn't asking questions to drive my agenda. I was, it was really out of curiosity about where they were coming from so that we could find a solution. And to me, the solution was um, making sure that information was access, accessible to everyone. Yeah. That makes sense. So in, in that case, you had someone who wanted to do something that you said, you know, that's not a good practice. Yeah. That's not the way it should be done. Correct. Um, and so, you know, it may have been tempting to just say that, like, that's not how you're supposed to do it. You're supposed to do it this way. Right. Right. And that's something we say a lot around here sometimes. Um, and so you approach that by asking questions. Could you talk a little bit about sort of, in your mind, you know, you were, were you open to changing your mind on that? Or, you know, because it, it's sort of like you could argue, well, why would you be open to doing something that's not a best practice? Yeah. It, so how were you thinking about it? Yeah, it was like, what am I missing? What am I what am I hearing or what have, what does someone else know that I don't that maybe would change my mind or maybe that I would see the situation differently. But again, the goal is to make sure that everybody had the information, not for one of us to get our way. So what, by asking questions to understand where they're coming from, then I can help make sure that we're all meeting the same, the goal. So some of it sounds like um, you were even challenging your own assumptions about the situation. Yes. That maybe I'm maybe I don't have the full picture, and maybe uh, maybe I'm wrong. Correct. In, in, yeah. in a sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a hard thing to do. I think. Yeah. When you're an expert in something, <laughs> you know. <laughs> it can it can be, but really, I mean, this is at the end of the day, it's not about me. It's not about what I'm trying to do. It's really about the project and what's best for the team and what's best for the people that we're trying to serve. Yeah. So so how do you know when you're being successful? At influencing what tells you okay this is working I think it looks it, it can look different um, I can think of another time when I was working on a project with um, with leaders from different departments on campus and we're all tr trying to get these people to work uh, do the same thing the same process which at, at the you can be different because every unit is so unique but we the goal was to try to get everybody marching down the same line in this process and um, you know, going down the road, there were a couple of leaders who kind of gave those empty head nods and like, yeah, yeah, this is great, and really weren't engaged in the meetings. Um, but I think as we got, as we went down further along the road, the the two people that I, that seemed most resistant, they started they started showing things that made me feel like, okay, they're getting it. They're not, they're, they haven't adopted the entire process, but they took a little bit over here, and I saw them take initiative on that, and I'm gonna consider that a win, and and know that at least I've got that, and hopefully can continue to lead them down down the road. So it's not it's it's not all or nothing, kind of, is what you're saying, like no. baby steps. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, and again, at the end of the day, I think it, it has to be, Influence is not about yourself. It's not about winning an argument or getting your way. Yeah, yeah. So you know, what do you you've done a lot of um, advising and coaching and consulting of uh, leaders and, and project leaders and so on on how to influence. What do you think is the biggest misconception out there that people have about influence? I think it can sound like a dirty word. That it can sound. Um, I have to influence. Um, I think it, it can sound manipulative, but. But really, it's it's not. I think we all do it and don't recognize that we do it. But there are times when we need to be more thoughtful about it. Um, and yeah, it's not it's not meant to be manipulative. It's it's really to try to get things. And I think influence is about bringing people along. Like you cannot accomplish anything by yourself. 
And so if you want to make big things happen, if you want to meet your goals, your department's goals, your team's goals, you need other people to join with you in doing it. Yeah, and so you know that's something that um, you know I, I think we see that a lot in the work that our team does with supervisors and leaders. Is is there's kind of a you know generally kind of a hesitation sometimes to to, to put ideas out there that that people think will be controversial or, or won't be you know kind of well received at first, uh, which is normal you know I think. But but definitely we see that. Would so if if there's someone out there who's you know trying to be influential but kind of feels like, oh, it's icky, like it's manipulative. What do you think the risk is in not using some of these strategies that we've talked about today? I think you won't get anything done. I think that uh, if you don't do some of these things and some of these these four things that we're looking at right now, it makes it harder to get, to get done. I've had experiences where there were, like we're doing this because there's a policy or we're doing this because the director said and it's like, well, it's easy to do that for a while and now I'm doing it and I've lost interest and I'm only gonna give you so much. But when you're really appealing to people in the right ways, you're getting their entire buy-in. Yeah, yeah, and certainly there are times where we have to say it's a policy, do this, but yeah, you're not absolutely. necessarily gonna get that broader influence, that broader buy-in, um, unless you get commitment to these broader goals, like you know, you're saying, great, well, thank you. So at this point, um, we're gonna uh, shift to the uh, Q&A section. Um, and so hopefully, you know, we've got some people with some good questions. This is a really um, important topic, a really difficult topic sometimes to think about how do we apply this to our situation that we're facing uh, as a supervisor. This is a big, complicated organization um, with uh, you know, a, lot of, a lot of complexity to it. Um, so well, we've got everybody here uh, on the you know the for the Q and A part. So um, we will start looking at questions. There's one that I want to address, yeah. um, and uh, this person says that um, you know could could we provide some suggestions for how to make time and space to do these or use these influencing skills within ex existing workload? And it sounds like this person has a, an enormous workload, and how do they? find the time to get their work done um, and still do things like relationship building and, and using the influence skills. So I would love to kind of hear what others would have to say about this. But my initial thoughts would be, um, you know, perhaps it would be helpful even five minutes um, to do some reflecting time and think about what is it that you want to impact or influence and what would a, a successful outcome look like so have that vision in your mind first and then perhaps take some baby steps um, and over time it may be that actually using some of the influence strategies that um, that we've been discussing today will help you with your workload somehow so those are my initial thoughts what do you what what do the rest of you think about that yeah, I think uh, reflecting is, is a, a great one, and, and I think, like I said, like you're probably doing this more than you think you are. Yeah, that's good. Um, so reflecting on and giving it some thought is will probably draw your attention to what you are doing, and kind of, and go from there. Mm -hmm. it's not, it's yeah. I mean, this some of supervising, which can be hard, is is intertwining it with your with your daily work, and that is. That is a challenge, but there are there are things that you're doing already that you're probably not you don't realize that you are already doing. Exactly, that's a really good thought. There's a question here that's a really um, 
kind of gets to the heart of something, uh, can you speak more about how to figure out who's the right person to influence? And I, I'm, I'm guessing that is related to that sort of formal org chart versus sort of how things actually work <laughs> uh, chart. I guess it's not quite like that, but you know, who are those key influencers who may not be in you know, prominent top of the org chart positions? And how do you, you know, how do you figure that out? How do you know who that is? Um, and you know, there's, there's a number of things that you can do. It, to a certain extent, is hard to do if you're brand new to an organization, but that's one of the first things that you're gonna wanna start understanding is in order to actually get things done, who do I need to know, who do I need to connect to, who actually has influence? Um, it may not be those at the top of the org chart. So some of the things that, that I would think about would be um, who do people trust on this issue? Um, who could express skepticism of what I'm trying to do and that could really derail what I'm trying to accomplish? Because if, if someone could, you know, if one person could raise their hand and say, I don't agree with this, I don't think this is a good idea, I don't think your data is accurate, whatever it may be, and that could really put up roadblocks and cause leaders to, to step back and say, wait a minute, maybe we need to stop and think about this. That's the person I want to really connect with. Um, they may be able to help me improve what I'm trying to do, um, and at a minimum, they definitely need to, to, to be on board with it. Um, you know, another would be, you know, really understanding kind of how decisions are made in a, in a unit or a department. Um, it's often the case here that decisions are made more by consensus uh, than hierarchically. Um, and so you can have this phenomenon where decisions are made and unmade and remade. Um, and so some of that then is, is really understanding, you know, how do they make decisions and who do people respect in this department or this unit in terms of, of that decision making, who speaks up the most, you know, that kind of thing. Um, are there others who have some thoughts on, on that working at the U of M? Tammy, I'm sure you've run into that a lot. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it really gets down. I, I have seen it work where, similar to what you said, where we're, we're, we know there's a situation that needs to change. You've got people who are really on board with ideas that have already been put out there and some that aren't. And I have found it helpful to go to those people who aren't on board and figure out do my best to figure out why. Sometimes it's really easy fix. Sometimes it's something that you didn't even think about. And if you could just address that one thing, then it solves everything or most things. And sometimes it's a lot more complicated, but trying to identify both the, the people who are really on board and the ones who aren't. Or sometimes it's about the content expert. Sometimes you just need more details about what you're talking about. And so it makes the most sense to go to that person instead of, you know, the, the dean or whatever. Someone was asking, what would you recommend in situations where a person you've identified as an influencer and could be of help, but trust is low and you're concerned about how you're sharing will land um, on the person? So I think what I would say is probably find another influencer, you know, and I understand that there's Maybe there's certain pieces that um, this person could help you with, but I, you know, that that trust is so important, um, and so I think it's really think about what it is you would get out of that relationship and how that would benefit you in terms of being able to influence. There's a good, um, I guess this isn't a question, but a request. Uh, I'd like to hear the speaker's opinion on compromise as a complement to influence, and that's something that. Um, 
I have seen a lot of people make mistakes on thinking, well, my job is I'm trying to accomplish this thing, so I just need to get everybody to do this thing. And so what strategies can I use to force everybody to do this thing? But most successful influence attempts um, involve some sort of, you're learning new things, you're learning what other people need and other motivations and other concerns and other questions, and that's gonna shape what you're doing in my experience. And you're gonna end up with something that may be close to what you were trying to accomplish. But as you go through the process, in order to get other people on board, in order to meet broader needs, you do generally have to have some compromises. And I think at the outset, knowing what some of those things are that you are willing to and can compromise on and what are non-negotiables is really, really important. Um, I, it's so rare to see someone start out with, I need to accomplish this, and if it's any you know, significant influence kind of thing, um, and actually end up exactly there. And I think often you, you will create resistance in the organization if you try to do that, if you try to force something through. I don't know why other people have an experience with that question of sort of the compromise versus just trying to kind of get done what you're trying to get done. Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I think that if you go into an influence situation with the exact outcome laid out, you're not really trying to influence, you're just trying to tell them what to do. And so, I think compromise is kind of the key. Like you have a general idea of what the outcome could or should be, but you don't have all the information or you wouldn't be having the conversations. Here's a good, uh, a good one that I've personally run into and seen a lot of people run into. Uh, so do you have suggestions for how I can navigate within committees, work groups, and meetings when I'm not leading them, but they are clearly not working because the leader has not identified the elephant in the room or asking direct, direct questions and, and things aren't getting done? Um, that's not uncommon. <laughs> and I think, you know, it, it to a certain extent depends on the situation and the people on the committee, but, um, you know, sometimes that's where you need to figure out a way to get out of your own comfort zone and sort of diplomatically call out the elephant in the room. Um, I've seen that work very effectively. Uh, typically, if there is an elephant in the room, people know it's there. So when you call it out, people aren't going to be shocked at, at that it's there, right? They may be a little uncomfortable or you know, uh, not want to talk about it, but I don't think anyone's going to be, be uh, shocked. And oftentimes people are relieved that someone's finally talking about it. Because oftentimes I think there's this sense that we don't have permission to talk about this thing. We all know it's there and that's why we're all checked out because we know at the end of the day this elephant in the room is going to stop us from being effective. So that's one strategy that I've seen work, is to do it diplomatically, connecting it to the goals that you're trying to accomplish, you know, not in a critical way, but um, in a very sort of business-like way. Um, we need to address this issue because I think it's getting in the way. Um, yeah, that takes getting out of your comfort zone, but it, it can work. The other thing that I've seen work is identifying people who are allies on the committee who may be able to bring the issue up for you. Um, in some committees, that's going to work more effectively rather than you bringing it up. Find other people on the committee who you know already share your concerns and talk to them about how they might bring it up um, in, in the group. Um, talking to the leader directly about it can work as well. All these things do require getting out of your comfort zone, though, and I think that's often what stops people from, from really doing that. Wonderful, we're um, at about time, so really great questions. Thank you for um, answering them. Um, Tammy, Brandon, Carrie, and Donna for your perspectives on those um, questions as well. 
So at this point, we're going to um, transition to some announcements, reminders, and some recaps um, for this session. We're going um, through this content rather quickly, so to learn more, you'll want to explore the Supervising Development website at supervising.umn.edu, where we have quick guides and other resources that you can download or view for your reference. The webinar recording will be available next week on the webinars page, and you will receive an email with a link to the recording. So thank you all for attending the webinar today, sharing your thoughts, asking great questions. We hope you find this information today useful and relevant to your supervisory experience, and we look forward to talking with you again soon. So thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Supervisory Development Course Podcast. Please explore resources mentioned in the podcast by going to supervising.umn.edu. The Supervisory Development Course Podcast is created by Leadership and Talent Development within the Office of Human Resources at the University of Minnesota. If you have questions regarding supervisory development, please email us at ltd.umn.edu. At